This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to the book of Judges this morning. The book of Judges. We are beginning a brand new series today called Broken People, Faithful God. Broken People, Faithful God. It's going to be a study of the book of Judges. If you've been here for a few years, you you know that a lot of times we'll study a book in the Old Testament during the fall. This is a time, you know, the Old Testament is about looking forward to Christ, right? We're looking forward to Christmas where we celebrate the birth of our Savior and to Easter beyond that. And so Judges is anticipating the coming of Christ. It's showing our need for a Savior. Broken people, faithful God. I'm really excited about uh, these next couple of months together as we're going to be walking through uh, the book of of Judges. And so uh, today we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2 instead of reading a particular text. I'm going to have several texts in chapters 1 and 2 of Judges that we're going to be uh, looking at. And so uh, let's pray together and we'll be underway. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to embark on a new series this morning. And uh, we thank you for the book of Judges. We we thank you for the message that is in this book that is so important that we're going to be talking about today. And we pray that you would bless it to our understanding. We pray that you would show us uh, how this book shows our need for a deliverer, a king for our lives, and that you would use it to draw us closer to the King, Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, as a student of of history, I enjoy visiting Civil War battlefields sometimes. And I've learned that there's a right way to do that, and there's a wrong way to visit a Civil War battlefield. The wrong way is to just kind of show up and start driving through the battlefield because what happens when you do that is that you find yourself passing by lots of monuments you know to this this company from this state you know this regiment from this state and you're you're driving past all these monuments but you're kind of like you know and how did this battle <laughs> fit together what what's the big picture of this battle the right way is to make your first stop the visitor center. Because in the visitor center, you get the big picture. You can see an introductory film before you set off on your drive that kind of shows you, okay, this was the big picture, this is what you're going to be driving through, and it just it helps you to understand it. So today, we're going to be stopping at the Book of Judges Visitor Center, Okay. And we're going to look at sort of the big picture of this book, where it fits in the Bible, in the whole scope of redemptive history, and and what the primary 
theme that we're going to be looking at uh, throughout these couple of months that we're going to be in Judges. What's the big picture of what this book is, is all about? And so um, today we're going to kind of do an introduction. And we're going to cover chapters 1 and 2, but really in chapters 1 and 2 of Judges, what you see is sort of the pattern and the theme that we, we're going to see throughout the whole book. One Old Testament scholar, Dale Davis, says this in his excellent commentary on the book of Judges. Davis says, the church has a problem with the book of Judges. It is so earthy, so puzzling, so primitive, so violent, in a word so strange that the church can scarcely stomach it. As with many Old Testament materials... The sentiment seems to be, if we just study the epistles long enough, maybe it will go away. The church has her way of dealing with embarrassing scripture. Ignore it. That's difficult to do with judges. It's so interesting. Only people who take tranquilizers before sitting down can doze off while they read it. (laughs) That's true. You know, judges may be a lot of things. It's not boring. It is utterly fascinating. The book of Judges is filled with incredibly colorful characters, fascinating, spellbinding adventures and stories. But the very fact that it is so filled with fascinating stories and characters poses a danger. And the danger is this. We can get the idea that this is just sort of a book full of hero tales. And that Samson and Deborah and Gideon and the other judges, that these are the real heroes of the book. But the real hero of judges is not human. He's divine. In fact, people don't come off so well in the book of Judges. Even the judges themselves don't come off so well in a lot of cases in the book of Judges. Um, Judges is about broken people and a faithful God. That's what we're going to be talking about this, this fall. Let's kind of ask some questions here as we... As we uh, walk through the book of Judges Visitor Center uh, today. First of all, why is it called Judges? When we think about Judges in our culture, people like Samson generally don't spring to mind, right? We're thinking about, you know, a man or a woman in a black robe and someone who is presiding over a trial, a judicial process. Um, Why do we call people like Samson, Deborah, Gideon, the others, why are they called judges? Well, in a way, they did have a, somewhat of a judicial role to play, but, but really the, the term judges is sort of a misnomer. Uh, in fact, a lot of times that word is translated as deliverer. That kind of gets to more of, of what God's purpose was for them. These were, these were men, in the case of Deborah, a woman 
who were raised up to deliver Israel out of crisis during a period when the nation was very much in crisis. And so God in his mercy, time after time during this period, he raises up deliverers, judges, leaders to shepherd the people through this somewhat chaotic time in their history. Okay, But that's why it's called uh, Judges. Second, in what biblical period do the events in Judges take place? In other words, how do we put the book of Judges within the scope of redemptive history? Uh, How does it fit into the rest of the Old Testament? So Judges takes place sort of during an in-between time. God has delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And of course, when they come out of, of, of slavery, God has leaders like Moses and then Joshua to lead the people, great godly leaders, Moses and Joshua. Later, God's going to provide kings. Judges takes place between those two times. It's between Joshua and the beginning of the monarchy. Okay, No king yet in Israel. And Joshua, Moses and Joshua are dead. So this is like an in-between time. And it's a time of crisis in many ways. It's a, it's a time of, of, of moral and spiritual chaos in Israel in many ways. Third, why was it written? Why was Judges written? Well, there's a huge message here for us. But before we can understand why it was written for us, we need to understand why it was written for the ancient Israelites. Because we can't understand what it means unless we understand what it meant. Why was it written for ancient Israel? It was to show them their need for a king. At this point, during the time that Judges was taking place, they didn't have a king. And they desperately needed a king. So Judges is sort of written as a justification for the monarchy in Israel. There are a couple of verses that are really key to understanding the book of Judges. In fact, the same phrase is repeated twice. First of all, in Judges 17 and verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's kind of a chilling statement, isn't it? And you see it again in chapter 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, it was a time of spiritual chaos. You had every, all these people running around and just doing whatever felt good, whatever seemed right to them, and there was very much an absence of godly leadership. They needed a king. And eventually God was going to provide a godly king in David. But David only points to our need for a greater David, right? (laughs) The one who was going to be born in Bethlehem 
the city of David, Christ. So all these judges, these deliverers that God raises up that we're going to study in this series, they just point to our need for a greater deliverer. God's going to raise up a king eventually, David. But David, just like the judges, is a flawed human being. And David points to our need for the one who was going to be the descendant of David, the Messiah, Jesus, the greater David. We need a king too, don't we? I mean, when you read this statement, doesn't this remind you of our culture in a lot of ways? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Is that not a description of our culture today? We need a king. We need the ultimate king. The king to whom David was going to point. The king of kings. Is he your king? That's the issue. Now, let's kind of talk about the framework here of, of Judges just a little bit. What's sort of the, uh, the, the basic problem that's going on that Judges is addressing is there a pattern that we're going to see throughout the book of Judges? Yes, there is a problem and there is a pattern. First of all, we're going to look at the problem. It actually starts out very well. The first verse of the book, it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now, in, in verse 1, so far so good. People are doing the right thing here. That's one of the few times in Judges where people are doing the right thing. But this is the right thing. First of all, they ask for guidance from God. That's the right thing. And also, they recognize that they still have a job to do, an, an unfinished task. Because in the book of Joshua, which immediately precedes Judges, what do we see in Joshua? In Joshua, we see that they enter the promised land. They've entered Canaan. They're in the promised land. God gives victory after victory after victory. But the job is not yet complete. Because much of the land is still occupied by the Canaanites. The Canaanites are still there in the land. So... They recognize we still have an assignment that is unfinished that needs to be carried out. Okay, so this is good, right? We're starting out positively here in verse 1. And throughout much of chapter 1, what you see is that God is giving victory after victory after victory over the, the Canaanites in the promised land, but... There's a problem. <laughs> problems are developing. Big time problems. Even before you get out of chapter 1. Uh, it begin, the problems begin in verse 19. The Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Do you think chariots of iron would be a problem for a sovereign, all-powerful God? What did God do to the chariots of the Egyptians at the Red Sea? 
Chariots were not the problem, okay? The, the problem was that they looked at these chariots of iron and they said, you know what, we don't have the strength to deal with that. And they were right. They didn't have the strength to deal with it. But God did. But they weren't looking to God. They weren't approaching this with faith. They were measuring their own strength against the challenge that they faced, and they realized they came up short. They weren't looking at the challenge and comparing the challenge to a sovereign, all-powerful God who had promised to give them this land. And so you see a lack of faith already you know, that is coming up here. And listen, in our lives, whenever we face a challenge in our lives, the issue is not whether or not we have the strength to be equal to the challenge. Because we don't. The issue is depending on God and His strength in order to meet whatever the difficulty, whatever the challenge is. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. They're walking by sight. That's, the pro- that's problem number one. Here's another problem coming up in verse 19. They're not driving out the Canaanites. God is giving victory after victory after victory, but they're not driving out the Canaanites, which God had explicitly told them to do. And so, in chapter 1, not only here in verse 19, but in verse 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, and 33, you see a four-word phrase, did not drive out. Did not drive out. God's giving them victory, but they're not driving out the Canaanites. Now, this is a huge problem. It's going to create incredible pain and incredible misery for them. Why are they not driving the Canaanites out? Well, I mean, we see here in verse 19, in in one instance, it's the chariots of iron. But there's another reason. And we see it four times in chapter 1. And that is, they wanted to use the Canaanites as forced laborers. Now, why did they want to do that? To enrich themselves. It was all about greed. It was all about money. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We see this being borne out in the book of Judges again and again and again. They don't force the Canaanites out because they want to use them as forced laborers so that they can be enriched and it is going to be self-piercing they are going to their greed is going to lead to incredible pain and misery in their lives god had commanded them he said when you take the promised land you are to drive out the canaanites who are there now why did god do that you say, hey, isn't that, 
isn't that just an example of ethnic cleansing like we've seen, you know, in many instances in our, in our world today, you know, just the horrible uh, cleansing, ethnic cleansing of a, of, a, of a group of people and driving them out? No. It had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with their ethnicity. In fact, some of the Canaanites, like Rahab, for instance, some of them became believers in the one true God, and they were totally accepted you know, within Israelite society. There's nothing racist about this or against a certain ethnicity. That's not why God commanded them to, them to drive them out. Nor... Did did God command them to drive them out because he was all about imperialistic expansion? You know, we're just going to take more territory. No. You have to understand what God's purpose was for Israel. After sin enters the world, the world, of course, is broken. Um, God God says, I'm going to redeem my broken world, and I'm going to start that redemption by calling out a special people, Israel. They are going to be a a people who are going to be like a light to the other peoples. And I'm going to put them, the special people, in this special promised land to serve me and to worship me, and they are going to be my beacon of light to all the other peoples in the world. That was God's mission for Israel. That mission could not be fulfilled with the Canaanites dwelling in the land. Canaanite culture was, at the, at the same, it was both depraved and alluring <laughs> at the same time. So alluring that God knew that the Israelites were not spiritually strong enough to withstand the influence of the Canaanites. He knew that if they allowed the Canaanites to remain, that there would be no way that they would be able to fulfill his, his, uh, his mission to be a beacon of light. He knew they would get pulled in, they would get sucked into the whole stream of Canaanite culture, which was all about idolatry. The Canaanites were all about the worship of Baal. Now, Baal was the god of fertility. And for ancient people, fertility was the name of the game. Fertility for crops. Fertility for livestock. Human fertility. Their, Their survival, the survival of ancient peoples in so many ways was dependent on these these things, and so the Canaanites uh, had they had this 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 god of fertility, Baal, and since he was the god of fertility, there was a Mrs. Baal that was Ashtoreth or Ashtaroth, okay, the goddess of fertility, and so the Canaanites believed that you know that 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 rain and the things that would nourish the earth, all of this came about because of the sexual activity between the Baal and Ashtoreth. And they believed that their role as human beings was to sort of assist this process. And so you had these shrines to Baal 
that were set up throughout the country. What happened in these shrines? They would have sacred prostitutes in the shrines. And men would go into them. And so that they believed that this illicit sexual activity that was taking place at the shrines to Baal and Ashtoreth, that this was somehow assisting in the fertility that would be produced by the god and goddess of fertility. It was depraved, it was warped, and you could see how it would be very alluring to sinful people. And see, God knew that if if all of this remained in the promised land, Israel was going to get sucked right into it. They were going to intermarry, their beliefs were going to start to get mixed up, they were going to get pulled into this, and they would not be able to fulfill their mission. And, And so God says, you're to drive them out. But what happens? Time and again in chapter 1, they don't drive them out. And as a result, there is all kinds of pain uh, that, that comes into their, uh, their lives. And so we see at the, be- at the beginning of chapter 2 of Judges that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Now, Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 2. When it says the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal. Why does it say that? Does the angel live in Gilgal? That's not the idea. There's a reason why the angel is coming up from Gilgal here. And it has to do with something that happened in Joshua. When the Israelites first entered the promised land, the first place that they camped upon entering the promised land was Gilgal. And God appears to Joshua at that point in time. Okay, they just entered the promised land, and God appears to Joshua in Joshua Joshua 5.9, and he says this, Today... I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal. Gilgal means to roll. To roll. God is saying here, I've rolled away the reproach of your slavery. I've rolled it away from you by grace. It was a reminder of what he had done for them. Now, in Joshua 2, what's happening is that God is once again reminding them of his grace. Remember Gilgal? I I rolled away the reproach of your slavery. I've brought you into the promised land. I made a covenant with you. I've done all of this purely by grace. 
And how have you responded to my grace? Instead of worshiping me, you're bowing down to idols, to false god, gods. And instead of loving me, you've turned your back on me. What is this you have done? What have you done? Now, at this point, God would have been perfectly just to say to them, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm done with your faithlessness. But he doesn't do that. God in his grace is going to preserve Israel and his means of preserving them is he's going to raise up these judges to shepherd them through this time. Now, there's a pattern that we see uh, developing in chapters 1 and 2 and we're going to see it time and time again in the book of Judges. It's a cycle. A cycle that they go through again and again and again. A pattern that they keep going through. And this is the pattern. Human sin followed by human pain followed by God's mercy in raising up a deliverer. This is what we're going to see over and over again in Judges. We're going to see human sin. Lots of it. That human sin is going to bring on painful consequences. And what's going to happen then? The people are going to cry out. They're going to groan in pain. Self-inflicted pain. But what's God going to do? God's going to hear their groaning. And God's going to respond in mercy by raising up a judge, a deliverer. To, to get them through that crisis. And this happens over and over and over again. God is faithful. They respond to his faithfulness by being faithless. And that brings self-inflicted pain into their lives. They're in terrible distress. They're being plundered. They're crying out in pain, groaning in pain. And just like a merciful God heard the groaning of his people when they were in slavery in Egypt. God once again hears their groaning and he responds in mercy and he raises up a series of deliverers, of judges to get them through this time. Now, we see the whole pattern of all of this, the whole book taking place here in chapter 2 and beginning with verse 13. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their, their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. This is the discipline of the Lord. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord 
and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This happens over and over. Okay, God will raise up a judge, and then they'll have a period of peace. The pressure is off. They'll have a period of freedom. You know what? They can't handle it. They can't, they can't handle freedom. You know, they're like kids in a classroom that seem well-behaved until the teacher leaves, and then it's, they go crazy because their hearts aren't right. They can't handle freedom. Where's your heart? We're talking about the heart in Judges. Let's, let's look at some takeaways from, from chapters 1 and 2. Takeaway number 1. The ugliness of half-discipleship. Their half-discipleship is seen in the four words that occur again and again and again in chapter 1. Did not drive out. You see... They want to live in the promised land, but they want to hold on to their sin at the same time. They tolerate the presence of the Canaanites in the land because really they want to tolerate the presence of their own sin. What is it in your life that needs to go? What is it in your life that needs to be driven out because it's hindering your walk with God. Is half discipleship really discipleship at all? Tim Keller says this, ultimately either all of our life is given to God in grateful, loving obedience or none is. Part obedience tends toward non-obedience. God wants all of our lives, not just part. You know, we sing, He is Lord. He is Lord. Is He really? Is He your Lord? Is He Lord of every aspect of your life? If He's not Lord of all in your life, is He really Lord at all? The ugliness of half-discipleship. Second, the beauty of God's grace. Again and again and again, what do we see in the book of Judges? We see a merciful God, don't we? Extending mercy to people who do not deserve it. Isn't that the gospel? We looked at Romans 5, 6 through 8 last week. Let's see it again. For a while we were still weak at the right time. Christ died for who? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows us His love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the beauty of God's grace. It's grace is mercy being extended to the undeserving. 
That's you and me. We're in the book of Judges. And Christ is in the book of Judges. Okay? It's ultimately, it's about the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. God's mercy toward sinners, toward the undeserving. That's us. We see the beauty of God's grace. Third, we see that God's grace is ultimately seen in the true deliverer, the true king. I mean, we're going to see in this series God raising up these judges, these deliverers, but they're all very flawed. They're all flawed human beings who only point to humanity's need for a greater deliverer. Judges is originally written as a justification for monarchy. We need a king. There is no king. God's going to eventually give a king, David. But David's a flawed human being too. David points to our need for a greater David. Our need for the one who was going to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. To Jesus. God's provided a king. Is he your king? Is he really king in your life? Every area of your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this part of your word. We, we pray that you would bless it to our understanding, bless it to our application as we walk through it. Father, we, we ask for forgiveness for the way that we've tried to hold on to different areas of our lives, not yielded them to the lordship of of Christ. We've all proclaimed you as king and not allowed you to be king in every area of our lives. Give us the grace to repent of that, that you would reign in every nook and cranny of of our lives, our words, our thoughts, our actions. Our desire is for Christ to be king. We need a king, and you have provided a king. Father, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't yet know the king as their savior, that they would turn to Jesus and place their trust in him and commit their lives to Christ as king today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, 
God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.